I don't know about you, but I have a love-hate relationship with the law. I have a love-hate relationship with the law. On the one hand, I saw the movie Black Hawk Down, and I don't want to go live in Mogadishu. I don't want to be ruled by a warlord. I don't want to be part of an anarchy. So I like the law. But on the other hand, I lived during that terrible, dark period in American history when we had a national 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. Some of you apparently did as well. Um, and, and I remember I remember that period. Um, I grew up in New Mexico, and uh, the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit was, was, was the reason it took us uh, three hours for the round trip to Albuquerque instead of two. And... and um, I remember the, the, the traffic signs, uh, the speed limit signs, with the bullet holes in them. So I, I have a feeling that it probably wasn't the most popular law ever passed. But I remember the speed 55 limit. And what I remember most of all was the debate about what was the real speed limit. I mean, we knew what the sign said there between the bullet holes. It said 55. But the real question was, what was the actual speed limit? Everyone knew you could, you could easily do 58. That was, that was a give me. You know, there was no problem at all with 58. But how about 60? Could you do 60? Could you do 60 and not get a ticket? How about 63? Could you go eight miles an hour over the speed limit and not get a ticket? Well, you're starting to get into shaky ground there. People would say, well, actually, you know, I, I've got a friend who's a friend whose cousin is dating a police officer, and she told me that, that you, only, you only get a ticket when you're above 13 miles an hour over the limit. So you'd hear all these different stories. There was this debate about how far you could go and not get a ticket. What was the actual law as opposed to what was written on the books and on those signs? When I got to New Jersey, when I, when I moved to New Jersey, I had, I had a coworker, Mark, <clears throat> who lived uh, in South Jersey, and he had a, he had a tremendous commute. He, tr- he commuted about 50 minutes each way up from Tom's River or somewhere down there all the way up to Middletown on the Garden State Parkway. And the Garden State Parkway, because it's New Jersey, probably had, I don't know, four or five times as many people per mile per lane as as the interstates in New Mexico, which is much less densely populated. And the same speed limit and the same uh, attitude toward the law, maybe without the bullet holes in the signs, no one obeyed the law there either. And I was having a conversation with him, and he and I was saying, you know, how long does your your uh, commute take, and he was telling me it took, you know, 50 minutes or whatever. And we had this conversation where I said, well, what do you think of the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit? And he said, oh, it's really important. And I said, do you obey it? He said, no. (laughs) But it's important that there be some kind of a limit on all these crazies. He he knew that the law served as a a kind of an anchor, that people would exceed the rule, but it had some kind of a pull that they wouldn't go too far beyond it. They wouldn't be utterly crazy. It wouldn't be Mogadishu out there on the Garden State Parkway. And um, I think all of us bring this kind of thinking about the law into any discussion about God because, because God and the law are intricately woven together. If you had been raised on a desert island and you'd never seen a Bible, you'd never seen a Christian before, and you picked up a Bible, one washed ashore, and you started flipping through the pages, you would get all the way to page two before you found the first law. It's a famous one. It's, you will not, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of its fruit, you will die. And we know how that turned out. Adam and Eve, they did eat the forbidden fruit. 
And the rest of the book is really a story of, okay, well, what did God do next? Given the fact that they disobeyed the law, what happened next? And so if you if you look at the story, you kind of read what happens to Adam and Eve and their children. You read the stories. that You get about 50 pages of stories. You get the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jacob's son, Joseph, who is the uh, vizier in Egypt. You get to Moses, who's, who's a prince of Egypt. And you get all the way until the second book of the Bible. You get to Exodus. You get to chapter 20 of Exodus, and suddenly you get more law. You don't just get one instruction about the forbidden fruit. You get ten commandments. But if you flip the page past the ten commandments, then you get chapter after chapter of instructions. What do the ten commandments mean? How do you actually live them out? There are so many laws in the next couple of books. The book of um, uh, Exodus doesn't stop the law. After that, you have Leviticus, which is all laws. Numbers, which is mostly laws with some censuses thrown in for fun. And then, and then the book of Deuteronomy, which again is mostly law. There's so many laws in the first five books of the, of the Hebrew scriptures that collectively those five books are called the law. They're called the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law. Scholars, Hebrew scholars, uh, studied the law. They, they studied it in great detail and they decided, based on their reading, they could, they could identify 613 distinct commandments in the law though those five books of, of the scriptures, 613 commandments, 248 don'ts, uh, sorry, 248 do's, 365 don'ts. So that was the way that they understood the law. And then on top of that, by the time of Jesus, by the time of Jesus, there was, there was a whole a bunch of uh, interpretation of the law. So the situation would be, okay, well, the law tells us what to do in this situation, and it tells us what to do in this situation. But we've got kind of a middle ground somewhere in between those two. How can we apply the law properly in those? And so these interpretive um, decisions were recorded as well. So by the time of Jesus, there was the 613 commandments, but then a bunch of other interpretive interpretive rules. So God is seems to be perfectly content with the idea that we will encounter him, at least in part, in terms of law. Not just a little bit of law, but a great mass of law. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus has a completely different perspective. He has a completely different attitude. He has a completely different relationship with the law than all the other religious leaders of his day. Jesus doesn't do what all the other religious leaders do. He doesn't obey the law. He doesn't obey the interpretation in the way that people expected him to. He heals on the Sabbath. The, the law said it was okay if your animal fell into fell into a pit, you could, you could lift your animal out of the pit on the Sabbath. But if you were sick on, on the Sabbath, then it would be considered going, uh, if you went to the doctor to get healed, that would be considered doing work, and you needed to wait until after the Sabbath. So Jesus paid no attention to that rule. Jesus said the Sabbath is, is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus had a different perspective with, re, with, with regard to the rules than the other religious leaders. Not only that, Jesus associated with people who didn't obey all the rules the way that people expected them to. Jesus' own disciples, one of his disciples was a man named Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were, depending on your perspective, they were either an insurgent group of freedom fighters or they were terrorists. The Romans would have said terrorists, the Jews would have said they were insurgents. But these are people who committed 
you know, if they'd had uh, improvised explosive devices in those days, they would have used them. These are probably people you didn't want to deal with. Simon the Zealot almost certainly had blood on his hands. But Jesus had a tax collector, worse than a zealot. Jesus had a tax collector in his own inner circle. Tax collectors were so bad that the other sinners, they would say, don't include them in with us. So we see throughout the Bible, it talks about Jesus was surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. That's because the sinners said, don't lump us in with the tax collectors. But Jesus attracted these kind of people around him. Jesus had a relationship with the law and with people who broke the law that was different from all the people who came before him, all the other religious leaders. Jesus was comfortable around them, and they were comfortable with him. Jesus had a different perspective on the law than the people before him. So people came to him and said, Jesus, what's the deal? What's up with you and the law? Jesus, are you soft on crime? That's the question Jesus asked. Are you soft on crime? And some of them asked that question because they were hoping he was. They were saying, look, there's no way that I can have a relationship with God because I cannot obey the law. Maybe it's because there's too much law or maybe because they're thinking about a particular law that the way I am, the, the things I've done, the, the things that have been done to me, there's a law that prevents me from having any kind of relationship with God. So they're saying, Jesus, I'm hoping you came to tell us that that law is no longer in effect. I'm hoping, Jesus, you came to tell us that law was never a good idea in the first place, and besides, it's old-fashioned, and no one does that anyway, so what's the big deal? I'm hoping, Jesus, you came to relax the law. There's other people who said, Jesus has a different relationship with the law than everybody else, and I'm concerned because I know the way I drive normally and the way I drive when there's a cop in the rearview mirror. And I'm really concerned what is going to keep us in control if Jesus gets rid of the law. If Jesus says, don't worry about the cop anymore. They said, I'm concerned what will happen to society. What will happen to me if Jesus says the law doesn't apply anymore? And that is the context into which Jesus speaks in our reading today. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He pronounces blessing on people who thought that they were not blessed. And then he says this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law, again, is those first five books of the Bible. The prophets is most of the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, I have not come to abolish but fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, some of you may may remember the old King James language. It talked about a jot or a tittle. Um, this is this is a phrase that that uh, our, our translation actually does a pretty good job. It says it says not a letter, not a stroke of a letter. Uh, other translations say um, uh, the next slide it says an iota or a dot. What is an iota? Um, and then famously, the King James Bible said a jot or a tittle. What is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? Let me show you some Hebrew Hebrew writing here. This is Hebrew writing, and it's too small, so let's zoom in on it a little bit. Um, so that's what it looks like, um, uh, shapes that, that you can't understand, and then little dots all over the place. So zoom in one more time. So this is, this is what the actual Hebrew alphabet looks like. Um, and uh, let me show you what a, what a, what a uh, uh, letter is. When Jesus says letter, he's talking about the letter that is, looks kind of like an apostrophe or a comma. 
the, the ones you see there, that's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And there's, there's obviously a lot of them. But Jesus says not even the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So that's what he's, when he says, when he says not an iota, not a, not a, um, letter. He says, even in that big page of, of ink we saw before, not even the smallest letters will pass from the law. And then he says, more than that, the next slide shows us, this is, this is a, um, this is a tittle. I don't, if you ever wanted to, you know, jot in a tittle, what's a tittle? A tittle is the difference between those, those two shapes. You see the, the shape on the far right has got a little dot in the middle, um, and then the, the shape next to it, uh, looks almost the same, but you can see it's got a little thing hanging off on one side. It's got a little tail. That's the only difference. They look kind of like backward C's, but one of them is backward C with kind of a line drawn at the bottom. Jesus says that little, little tip that distinguishes those two letters, that's a tittle. He says not even a stroke, the smallest stroke in the Hebrew alphabet. He says nothing will vanish from the law. So if you had your hopes set on Jesus coming along and saying, well, you know, that's kind of an old, old law. No one pays any attention to that anymore. Jesus says, no, no, indeed. He says, not even the smallest part of the law will vanish. He says, the law is good. The law is fine. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is God's good, good gift to you. Jesus says, the problem is you. The problem is you break the law. And at this point they go, all right, all right, wait, I'm just confused now, Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. If the problem is us, why do you hang out with all these lawbreakers? If the problem is not the law, the problem is the lawbreakers, why do you get along so well with people who break the law? And Jesus says, they're why I came. People who break the law are why I came. He says, that's why I came, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus says, essentially, what Jesus is saying is, here is the strategy. Here, here is the big picture. What am I up to? He says, my goal was to come here and obey the law perfectly in every detail, down to the smallest jot, the smallest tittle. I am going to obey the law. I'm going to go beyond the letter of the law. I'm going to obey the law in spirit as well as letter. I'm going to obey the law perfectly because then what I will do is I will present myself before the Father and I will say, God, I want to trade my righteousness for their unrighteousness. Because then you can be connected back to God. Because then you can have my life, the kind of life I have. You can have the kind of life I enjoy. Once you're connected back to God, you can have that life in you. You can have a new birth. You can be reborn from above. You can have the life of eternity. You can have eternal life flowing in you and through you. Jesus says, that's the plan. There's a cost. When I finish trading my righteousness for your unrighteousness, God cannot smile on unrighteousness. God must pour out his wrath on unrighteousness. And I'm prepared for that too. But he says, the big idea here is I will fulfill the law. I will fulfill the law so I can trade my righteousness for your unrighteousness. So often we obey the law except the parts we don't. There's 613 commandments. We probably have no trouble at all with 500 of them. It's that other 113 that give us the dickens. And so what do we do? 
what most of us do is we say, well, that's not a very good law. Or it's a good law for them. I'm glad that there's a speed limit because these people are crazy and I can't imagine what it would be like driving on this road if they didn't have those laws. But it doesn't apply to me. It's a bad law for me. It's a law that shouldn't apply to me. It's a law, frankly, that's a little archaic. It's a little old-fashioned. Nobody else obeys it. Why should it apply to me? Most of us have that kind of reaction to the law. And Jesus invites us to have a different kind of response. Jesus invites us to say, the problem is not the law. The problem is me. The problem is not that I'm a good person and the law is broken. The problem is I'm a broken person and the law is fine. So during Lent, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the rest of this conversation Jesus has about the law, where Jesus says, if you think the law is trouble now, wait until I crank it up to 11. Wait until you see what the law is really all about. When you see what the spirit of the law really is, you'll realize you cannot possibly keep it. And when you do, then you can turn to me and ask forgiveness. And I can begin making you the kind of person who can keep God's perfect law. So we'll be looking at the way Jesus talks about uh, murder and anger, about uh, adultery and divorce and remarriage. He's going to talk about a lot of intrusive things that are going to make us uncomfortable. So I'll see you at Easter. But in the meantime, during Lent, we're going to be looking at the way Jesus shows us that the law is actually a good thing, and it's we who need help. And that's why he came. Can you imagine what it would be like if that's the message the, the church had historically presented to people? Instead of, instead of putting up uh, bumper stickers and getting in people's faces and, and pounding our fingers in their chest, instead of saying, you're a lawbreaker, if instead we'd come up to people and said, you're having trouble with the law? You're having trouble keeping those 613 commandments? Well, me too. But I have good news. I have good news that God is aware of our problem and God has a plan in Christ to make us into the kind of people who can. Can you imagine how differently people would perceive the church if that's the message that we communicated? If that's the way we shared the gospel to them? Maybe they'd be as comfortable around church people as people were comfortable around Jesus. Maybe we'd be as comfortable with them as Jesus was comfortable with people like that. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, your law is good. And Jesus did not come to create new loopholes and new exceptions. Jesus came to show us the law is a mirror that reflects how broken we are. And we are so grateful, God, that Jesus came to trade his righteousness for our unrighteousness to reconnect us to you so that we could become the kind of people who obey your perfect law. Help us to look at the law. Help us to have the courage to look at the law, to see in us the parts that are broken, and to come to you trusting in your forgiveness, knowing that you can make us better. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.